Good evening, ladies. Um, I am really excited to be back with y'all. Um, I'm still nervous, and I'm like, why am I nervous? I really do enjoy the time that I get to spend with y'all, so I'm very excited, thankful that Amy invited me back um, for this summer study, When Strivings Cease. It's a good title, right? It really, like, draws you in, um, and I think it's because it's something that we all struggle with, striving trying to achieve something that we feel will make us feel significant, right? You know, when I was in college, somewhere around my sophomore year, I transitioned from pursuing all of the pleasures and things that college life had to offer um, and began pursuing Jesus. I rushed a Christian sorority. I joined a Bible study. I started going to um, a popular church in our city. I um, dropped all of my non-Christian friends and only hung out with Christian people. And I broke up with my boyfriend, right? I did, I know, I, I did all of that. Because I thought if I surrounded myself with only Christian people or Christian things that I would be more Christian. And that attitude of wanting to be better started really when I was a young kid. Um, as a kid, I was a pretty strong achiever. Um, I, went ha- I went hard after everything that I wanted, um, trying to get it and trying to be the very best at everything. When I was um, in high school, I was in student council, and I went from secretary to student body president. That was how, um, how I operated. If I had a goal, I went after it full steam because I wanted to be the best at whatever it was. So in college, I had this significant encounter, conversation with this older um, Christian girl, and she confronted me on the way that I was living. Um, And she challenged me to live differently, to stop the party lifestyle and follow Jesus. And so I was convicted by what she said in an effort to please her and please God, I was determined that I was going to be the best Christian, which is why I did all of those things, right? So, um, and I thought, because if I can be the best Christian, then it would cover over all of the sketchy things that I had done up to that point in college. And if I was a good Christian, then I would be elevated to um, this, this place of status within the Christian bubble that now I was a part of that um, people would respect me or celebrate me or um, hold me up as someone who is really holy now. And so I wasn't pursuing God to know him better or to deepen my relationship with him. I was pursuing being a Christian just to receive recognition from others and to absolve my own feeling of guilt. And that kind of striving that's not connected to God has no limit. It has no end. We strive forever in that kind of way. But the one thing that I kept in my life was, um, the one thing that wasn't Christian was fish camp. So you guys know I went to A&M. I was a fish camp counselor. Yes, I hear my Aggies. I was, a, I was a fish camp counselor, and I loved it. It was the one thing that wasn't Christian that I kept in my life because it was life-giving for me, and I didn't want to give it up. So my senior year, um, it was my third year as a fish camp counselor, and um, uh, we were leading our group at camp, and I remember being so intense. By this time, I've been practicing being a professional Christian for a long time, right? And so um, I was really intense and I was desperate to convince our group of freshmen that um, 
that I knew how they could best live their lives, that they could be honoring and perfect, and I knew the right way, right? And so I remember when they would share their stories, I would listen to them, and immediately I would chime in and correct them and try to convince them how what they did or what they said was not correct. And then one day, y'all, I remember this so clearly, my co-counselor, he looked at me, and he goes, "Um, hey, chill out. Like, you're coming on too strong. You're pushing too hard. And I can still feel the embarrassment from that moment. It wasn't until that moment that I realized that I wasn't trying to share the good news of who Jesus is. I wasn't trying to um, help them understand the freedom that he provides. I was trying to modify their behavior. And for what? Just so that I could look better, so that then I could say, look what I have done to these freshmen. I have changed them. And so my striving looked like I was pursuing Jesus, right? But it was really about pursuing selfish glory and um, recognition. My striving centered myself instead of centering Jesus. And I wonder for you, what does striving look like? Tonight, we're going to talk about two things, centering self and centering Jesus. We're going to look at how in the very beginning, a little lie caused us to take our eyes off of God and put them on ourselves. And how little lies today cause us to do the same thing. That at the heart of much of our striving is a self-centered focus. After we look at the way we center ourselves and the heartache and the exhaustion that it causes, we're going to discuss what it means to center Jesus, to rest in his saving grace and experience a new life and a new identity. And then finally, we're going to embrace and rehearse the fullness of the gospel of grace by remembering this key verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. And that's Ephesians 2.8. So who do we center? Who do you center? Do we center ourselves or do we center Jesus? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was at the center of the story. We're told that in the very first words in the Bible, right? He's the creator. He is the one in charge, the only one who deserves to be at the center. And things are fine for a while, right? You guys know the story. Until a cunning serpent tells a little lie that suddenly shifts the focus from God to the people that he has created. In Genesis 3, we're told exactly what would happen or what happened. It says, starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. 
Do you see the shift? The serpent questions Eve and causes her to believe that God is holding out on her, that God doesn't know or want what's best for her and Adam. They spent all of this time walking with God in, and, in, and in what feels like a moment, in just this one moment, Eve is questioning everything that she's known. She's questioning all that she's been told. And she's thinking, is God good? Is he trustworthy? Is there really more that he isn't telling me? And all of a sudden, we move God from the center and we center the story on ourselves. What am I missing? Why can't I know what God knows? Why is God keeping things from me? What isn't he telling me? And the centering of self causes Eve to reach out and take the fruit. She mistakenly thinks that there is more that she can know than what God has already revealed to her. And in that moment, when she stretches out her hand and takes that fruit, the striving begins. The striving that says you can get more if you just reach out and take it. And when we center ourselves, we often do so because we don't trust God and because we strive for power. There are lots of other ways that we can center ourselves, but we're going to focus on those two areas. When we center ourselves, we do so because we don't trust God and because we strive for power. Eve didn't trust God. She thought there was something he was keeping from her, and it made her believe that he couldn't be trusted. Eve wanted to know what God knew. She was enticed by the lie that she would become like God. She believed that she could be as powerful as God and know everything. She could put her own destiny, her own future in her own hands. But you guys know the story and you know what happens next, right? Things don't turn out the way that she believes that they will. Her decision to go against God her sin causes her to feel fear and shame. On day four in your workbook, Ruth uh, Chow Simon says, sin caused us to feel fear and shame, and we've been trying to prove ourselves ever since. Ever since. So this is where striving begins. And much like the story that I shared at the beginning, we find ourselves striving to be enough because we keep trying to center the story on ourselves and not on God. We center ourselves when we don't trust God and we strive for power. And um, it's my kids really who helped me understand this. So my husband is uh, dean of students at a school nearby, and it basically means that he is an assistant principal and a youth pastor rolled into one. Um, and so he spends most of his days hanging out with high school students. And when graduation season rolls around, we get inundated with uh, grad party invites. Um, and we used to go to all of these parties as a family. Um, and I told you guys, I think the last time that I was here, that second to young adults, I love high school students. So for me, I saw this as an opportunity to go and get to know some of the students that he spends his time with. Um, and our school is very family-oriented, so when an invite is sent, they really are inviting the whole family. But you might have noticed that I said we used to go as a family. Now my husband goes to these parties by himself because in his first or second year in this position, my kids fell into the pool at two parties. 
two parties, my kids fell in the pool. Yep. And they were fine. They were in and out of the water, you know, within minutes. But after that, I was like, nope, we are not going to any more parties. Literally, he goes to them all by himself. Um, Or we leave the kids behind. But at the first party, Levi fell into our friend's pool when he broke the cardinal rule of pools, which is you don't run around the pool, right? He was playing with a friend, and he came running from the side yard toward the pool full force. He saw the pool, we saw him, and before we could grab him and before he could stop himself or even turn, he was in the pool. He went straight into the pool, and my husband was in the water as fast as he was and pulled him out. And Levi came out laughing and in shock, like, what just happened? A few days later, we go to another grad party. This one is in the evening, and the mother of the grad has decorated the pool with balloons. And so these balloons are, yeah, you already know the story. Uh, (laughs) So the balloons are floating in the water, and it's really very beautiful. And my daughter asked me, can I sit by the pool and look at the balloons? I'm outside. My husband is outside. So I'm like, sure, yeah, you can sit down and look at the balloons. Um, So she's looking at the pretty balloons, but they just are just too enticing to her. And so she reaches out, and she tries to grab one. And she reaches too far, and she falls into the water. And before I can even pull her out, a senior boy is pulling her out of the pool. But she wasn't laughing. She was in shock, and she was terrified. So I tell you these stories to kind of illustrate um, in a playful way what striving can look like. So my son broke the cardinal rule of pools, and he ended up in the pool. He didn't trust us when we said, don't run, don't run around the pool because you can fall in or you can slip and fall on the concrete outside the pool. He thought, I can control my own body. I I know what I'm doing. And Levi is very athletic, but it didn't matter. He still fell in the pool. And sometimes we're like that, right? We don't take God at his word. We don't trust uh, what he says is true or for our best. We think we can control the situation. And we run around full speed trying to do things our own way. And most of the time, we end up in the pool, right? Suffering the natural consequences of our decisions. My daughter was different, right? She knew she could fall in the pool. She asked us if she could just sit by the pool and look at the balloons. But she thought, I think I can grab one. I think I can grab this balloon and nothing's going to happen. I can reach out and take it and I'm not going to fall in. I think by my own power and my own ability, I can do it and everything will be okay. So she reaches out, tries to grab the balloon, and just like Levi, she falls into the pool. She suffers the natural consequence of trying to do things in her own power, right? She could have asked me or my husband for a balloon. We were standing right there, but she thought I can do it on my own. And we can relate to that also, right? I'm strong enough. I'm educated enough. I'm equipped. I'm skillful. I'm capable. I can do it on my own. And many times we strive for years doing it on our own, only to find ourselves sinking, right? In shock, wondering what happened. How did I get here? Like I said, my kids were fine. And outside of being wet, (laughs) shocked, a little bit embarrassed, they went on to play Um, and enjoy the rest of the party. For us, though, (laughs) the consequences of striving can usually last a lot longer, right? It can lead to broken relationships when we don't trust 
trust God with our families or our friendships or our marriages. We strive to fix them ourselves, and we end up suffocating the people that we love with unreasonable expectations or demands. When we center ourselves by seeking power and status, we sometimes bulldoze right over people. We hoard our own resources, we elevate ourselves above others, and we think that it's our right to do so. The striving for control and power is exhausting and it is relentless. And to continue our water illustration, because I actually really love water, that's why this this message is full of water illustrations, but it's like being on the shore and getting hit by a wave and then another and then another constantly hit by waves. Wave after wave pounds down on you and you can't stand up and you can't see straight. My friends Nick and Megan went, they spent their honeymoon at the beach and they went out the first day to lay by the ocean and to play in the water. They go out to the shore together and my friend Megan gets hit by a wave and it's a big one and it takes her down and she gets hit by this wave and then she gets hit by another wave and she's hit over and over again, and she's just being tossed to and fro on the shore. And so she's telling us this story. They get back from their honeymoon. She's sharing this story with us, and the question that we have is, well, where was Nick? Where's your husband? <laughs> because surely your husband would come to your rescue. So her, her face turned red, and her eyes got wide, and she said, he was standing there telling me to get up. Yeah, so we're, we turn and look at him, and he's laughing, and he's saying, what? All she had to do was get up, just stand up. Can you imagine you're being pummeled by wave after wave after wave, and your husband is standing there telling you, just stand up, just stand up. You can't do that, right? She needed him to pull her up to rescue her. When we center ourselves and we continue to strive after things that we think will satisfy, when we try to put our trust in things that are temporary and try and try and try to do things in our own power, it's like being on that shore and getting taken out by the waves. You can't pull yourself up. You can't see straight, right? You need someone with the power to get you out, someone you can trust, who loves you, who can pull you up. And Jesus, thankfully, doesn't yell at us from the shore to just stand up, right? (laughs) Thankfully, he picks us up. In his grace, he saves us, and he gives us a new life, and he replaces all of that striving with peace. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, we can see exactly how when Jesus is at the center, our striving can cease. Um, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 says this, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This passage is our reminder that Jesus is at the center of the story. 
He is in control, and he is powerful. There is nothing that we can do on our own, in our own power, to save ourselves or anyone else. Centering Jesus gives us a new story and a new life. It says that God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. We are saved by grace, God's grace, the unmerited favor, the gift that only, only comes from God. His grace has saved us. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens with Christ Jesus. He has given us a new story, right? He's adopted us as daughters and brought us into his kingdom and seated us with Christ. Like, let that sink in. We are adopted as daughters and seated with Christ. How incredible. You don't have to strive anymore because he says, I have a place for you. I see you and I have written you a story. Every time (laughs) I see you and I've written you a story that is more beautiful than anything that you can do. I kept my promise. I want you with me. And I've done everything to have you here. Everything. So the sin of Genesis that separates us, it separates us no more. God has reconciled us back to him. Centering Jesus gives us a whole new story. Centering ourselves gives us the illusion of control. Centering Jesus, giving him control, trusting him gives us peace. And centering Jesus also gives us a new life. We are saved by grace through faith. And it's not from ourselves. It is God's gift so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time. He prepared it ahead of time for us to do. He has given us a new life, a life that only he can give. To replace all of our striving for power and control with striving to follow only after him. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't have to do it in our power. The more that we press into him, the more that we strive after him, his power will flow through us. And he will give us what we need to face anything that comes our way. Do you guys remember the song, How He Loves Us? There's this line in that song that says, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And I love that line because I think if God's grace is an ocean, which I like to think that it is, but even more than an ocean, but if his, if his grace is an ocean, then we're all sinking. None of us can escape it. And it's not um, like the examples that I shared of falling into a pool or getting hit by waves. When I imagine it, it's a safe type of sinking, kind of like snorkeling. You know, like you go snorkeling and suddenly you go under the water and there's this whole world in front of you that you've never seen before. And it's beautiful and it's peaceful. 
there is no fear, there's no shame, there's no striving. And I imagine that that's what it feels like to sink into God's grace. It's resting and it's moving with the current of the grace that God has given us. Um, in your books, Ruth uh, Chow Simon says, we need to embrace and rehearse the fullness of the gospel of grace. And so I want to leave you with a Jesus-centered statement from Ephesians. We've been saying it all night, but if you remember anything from tonight, remember this verse. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Remember it. Repeat it. Uh, post it on your windows, on your rearview mirrors, everywhere. Embrace it and rehearse it. Embrace it and rehearse it. God has given us. He has saved us by his grace through faith. And it's not because of anything that we did. God did it. He can be trusted. It's a gift that he gives us. And only he is powerful enough to save us. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, help us to remember that truth. Help us to embrace it and rehearse it. God, what... Um, who are we, Lord, that you would extend such a beautiful gift to us? That you would continue to pursue us, to reconcile us back to yourself. God, we cannot praise you enough for the gift of grace that you have given us. So, Father, help us to remember that we don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to do it in our own power. That we can trust you with every part of our lives, every piece of it even the part that we're holding back because we're afraid to trust you with that. We can trust you with every part of ourselves, God. You have created us. You have given us a new story. We are daughters of the king, and you have prepared a place for us. So God, help us to live in that truth, to embrace it and rehearse it. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to come and share your word with these women. Thank you for these women that are in this room who have taken time out of their schedules to come together to um, sit around a table and discuss your character and um, how you are shaping and changing them, Lord. I thank you, God, um, for this time. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.